Um, hi, my name's Emma. Um, it's a delight to be here with you this morning. Uh, I was one of the people that Flick was on holidays with, and while she was smashing the Discworld series, I was had my head in some what I call outback crime. It's a particular genre. Um, but we also spent a lot of time chatting about, um, yeah, New Year and what's gone on in the last 12 months for us, what we're looking forward to. Um, there were some little things on the horizon, there are some big things. And I realised as I was watching one person in particular do a large amount of reflecting over the year that that actually isn't my thing. I'm not a reflector. I'm a look forward person. I'm not even a resolutions person. I'm a 12 fun things to do in 2024 person. I don't know what sort you are. Um, I suspect that um, actually for heaps of people, uh, there's something in the, um, the articulating of resolutions that maybe is a bit hard or just not really your jam. They might be a bit more unexpressed than that. Um, and I've got one friend who, in particular, said, uh, I just need this year to not be as hard as last year. So whether your hopes are a bit superficial, like mine, maybe, or maybe they're slightly more serious, um, I think there is an undertow for many that we just want good things from 2024. And one of the books that I was reading uh, had, like, I guess was providing a bit of social commentary on uh, con a context uh, not that dissimilar to ours. And uh, the author painted a picture of this person, this woman in her 30s, single, um, who like worked throughout the day, got home, sat on the couch, watched Netflix and ate a microwave meal. And my visceral reaction was just like, oh, that's me. And I don't want that to be the picture, but I think it might be Taity. <laughs> I don't want that to be the picture. There's nothing wrong with it. And I'm sure for many of you, that sounds like a delightful evening. But I didn't. I wanted more from 2024. Oh, no, that rhymes. I wanted fullness and energy and fun things and meaningful things um, rather than what I was projecting as the like meaninglessness um, in this something that was less empty and more full. But like, what should we be aiming for? Um, I think it's a good um, and honourable question to ask. Like, where do we get our vision of the good life from? Or as many of us like to say, living your best life. And if I'm going to be honest, when I sit around, um, I'm painting a particular vision of my friends. We're more nuanced than this, I promise. Um, but when I sit around with friends and we're like such living your best life, usually have a glass of Pinot in one hand and a cheese and cracker in the other, right? Or in another context, um, it's often around sitting with a particular summer novel on the beach, not too windy, but just windy enough that you're not too hot. In another context, again, it's about the fact that the toddler has finally gone to sleep, so now we can pull out the dessert that has sugar in it and enjoy ourselves but it will come as no surprise to you, I hope, that this is actually not the biblical vision of flourishing, not the biblical vision of the good life. And interestingly, I was chatting with a good friend last night, and when I shared this sort of inattention um, for me between how I say, or, what, or like what's happening when I say, um, oh, I'm living my best life, and what I think Jesus is on about, she was very quick to assure me that I was doing fine, didn't need to put any pressure on myself, not to be too hard. 
which was really lovely of her, um, and I totally understand why she said it, but actually for me in that space, it wasn't all that helpful. I want to ask something deeper, something more significant than that. And you might ask why, but it's because I'm a Christian and I want to consider what my best life, I want to consider what flourishing looks like in light of who God is and how he has made our world, not just what I find fun in the moment. Plus, the Harvard Human Flourishing Program research shows what we suspect, that the pursuit of flourishing through comfort, wealth, health, and pleasure is only mildly weakly associated with happiness. So actually, I think we need to look somewhere else. And so we're starting here at Mary Creek, looking at what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes. And I want to suggest that this teaching of Jesus is his answer to the question, how can I live my best life? How can I have a flourishing life? Because as we heard earlier in the service, Jesus has said that, he says, I'm, I've come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. Or put another way, Jesus has come that we might live the best truly human life. So the two verses we're going to look at today, and we're going to do them in pairs throughout January, we're going to look at, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What can we glean, glean sorry, from these two verses about our 2024. So first, I think we need to look at what the word blessed means in this context. Uh, and there are two main ways that uh, this word is used throughout the Bible. The first one is where um, it's like God giving like a gift of divine blessing. Like it's a gift from God to people. Sometimes that's stuff, sometimes that's land, sometimes that is an emotional state, but it's like a gift from God. The second way is is like blessed as a statement of reality. So it's about living life in the presence of God. That is what a blessed life is. And whilst there's, I'm sure you can see that there's overlap, it's a little Venn diagram, and it's why we use the same word, is I think it's the second emphasis, which is what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, the word in Greek includes things like happiness and fullness and flourishing. So here is Jesus making a statement about what the blessed life is, a statement about the reality of life. But it's really key that we note Jesus is not just like a really great philosopher making an observation about causality. It's not like A, B, therefore C. No, here Jesus is God, and he is declaring with the authority that comes from being God what the true way of being human is what happiness looks like, what human flourishing looks like. This is Jesus making a statement as God about the true reason, the true purpose, what it looks like to be fully human. So we could read the verse like this. Um, flourishing are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or another translation goes, there is wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. We could do the same for the second one. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is wonderful news for the mourners. You are going to be comforted. But before we go any further, I do just want to um, reiterate what these statements are not. 
Jesus is not saying, if you do X, then, or if you experience X, then God will do Y. It's not as if, like, if I just, like, behave as someone who is poor in spirit, then I'll get the kingdom of heaven. Or um, if I just sort of have a very serious demeanor at all times, then I will experience the comfort of God. He's also not saying that if you mourn, you will immediately get comforted because we all know that that's not true. We know people who have experienced deep grief and often it doesn't go away. They're also not entrance requirements for being blessed by God. Uh, Jesus will only bless you if you are poor in spirit or Jesus will only bless you if you are mourning and sad. They are not simply statements either about the future reality. This isn't like, well, in heaven, mourners will be comforted. In heaven, uh, the poor in spirit will will inherit something. Because actually we know that eternity starts now. Heaven has begun breaking in. So what's true of a future reality with God is beginning to be true now. That's why it's wonderful news. It's an announcement. So this is Jesus, who is God, offering a vision of a way of being in the world that will result in true flourishing, precisely in the context of this forward-looking faith in God eventually setting the world to rights. And if you've been around church or read your Bible, um, you will know that there is a particular tension in the Bible story. Humans don't flourish. We know it from the Bible. I know it deep in my soul. Uh, You might know it too. But it's not because God made us faulty or that we're kind of defective in some way. Uh, But sin is entered into our world and it means that we fail to both love God and love one another. So we live in this tension where there's a future reality that God has promised to us of what true human flourishing will look like And yet there is the tension of the reality of sin and darkness and death uh, paradoxically sitting next to, if you will, life and goodness and flourishing. So in a way, Jesus is saying, you may not see that the poor in spirit can have a flourishing of life with me, but they can. You may not see how the darkness of this world could ever possibly be overcome by light and life, but comfort is coming. I think it's really interesting here too that Jesus says poor in spirit um, because whilst economic oppression was very real then, it's very real now. He's actually highlighting that there's more to poverty than simply economic poverty. But I think this verse includes that too. I think Jesus is saying that there is flourishing available for those who are economically poor, socially poor, relationally poor. It's like with Jesus, there is flourishing available even when materially it doesn't look like that's what's happening. And yet, it is this larger category of spiritually poor that Jesus is addressing. So, whereas when Jesus' hearers would have um, thought, the kingdom of heaven, this like entire hope of Israel, the Old Testament has like been building and building to this point. 
They're like, but it's only available for the spiritually abundant. And here Jesus is saying, you see those who you think are outside my kingdom. You see all of these people that Jesus has been connecting with. You think that they are not part of this. Well, you're wrong. Jesus' kingdom is for them too. In fact, it is for anyone, regardless of your economic state, your social status, whether you're in the in-crew or not, it is for anyone who recognises they need me, who recognise they need Jesus. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying there is a fullness of life, there is an eternal reality that is not something you can tell from the outside. It is an internal reality. I think there's also this really good news for those of us here who, um, I guess, are like acute, acutely aware that we don't have it all together. Those of us who believe, or struggle, I should say, to believe that God is real, um, that God is good or powerful, when we don't really like church, even if we're technically employed by it. Those of us who find prayer hard, sometimes too hard to even try. There is really wonderful news here for those of us who look at other people's lives, people who don't seem to have faith in anything much, but there's a little part of us that envies them because it looks more simple to not follow Jesus than to work with the ethical concerns raised by following Jesus. So if you feel poor in spirit, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. And actually, all of us are poor in spirit. None of us come to the table with anything, whether we feel it or not. We all come with nothing other than open hands. And this, friends, is wonderful news. Flourishing with Jesus is available to us. Flourishing with Jesus is available to you who are poor in spirit who are mourning. Jesus has got you. You might feel like you're only holding on by your fingernails today, but Jesus has got you. The, whole, the kingdom of heaven is yours. I also think in our pleasure-seeking, um, pain-avoiding, just get over your sadness as quickly as possible so we can go for a beer at the pub and joke around culture, it is such a sigh of relief that we can have flourishing, deep flourishing as possible, even in the midst of mourning and pain. The Jewish hearers of uh, Jesus' message, it would have like triggered thoughts of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 61, where they're talking about mourning the exile. There was this hope, this vision that they had, and then suddenly that's not their reality anymore. They are longing for God's grace. They are longing for God's comfort, Isaiah says. And they are believing, even though it currently doesn't look like or feel like it's true, they are believing that God will comfort them, even if it's not in their lifetime. And so when you look out into the world, wherever that might be, and you see brokenness and darkness and sadness, you read the news and you actually shut the app or the paper, if you're old school, because it's too much, like you just can't read it anymore. There is comfort. Jesus will return. 
He will put this world back to rights. But it's not just on that like meta level either. There is something that can happen in our own hearts. When we look at ourselves, we look at our lives, we just look at the brokenness in our friendships and our families and the relationships and whether it was that thing that was said at Christmas that you wished you could take back. There is comfort. Uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus says that he has given us his spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And the word comforter is how the Holy Spirit is described. The Holy Spirit is here, is with you to comfort you. Even though, as the psalm says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not fear, for the Spirit of Jesus is with you. He comforts you. So I think the central point is this. Jesus is offering us a vision, a way of being in the world that will result in true flourishing, not because we can see it all now, but because we know that God is at work in his world and we have a forward-looking faith that will, in God who will eventually set this world back to rights. So I want to say this morning that flourishing are the poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And if you are mourning today, flourishing are those who mourn because you will be comforted. These are descriptions and commendations of the best life. And Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers, that's us, into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. So I want to summarize it like this. Living your best life is living life with Jesus. It's not getting distracted by the very fun list of 12 things that I'm going to do this year. It's not believing that obtaining the long-desired healthy habits that will just make a new me will make a new you. No, living life, living your best life is living life with Jesus, who reverses the world's expectations, who reverses the world's values, and actually accepts you whether you keep your New Year's resolutions or not. This is what some people call like the upside-down values of the kingdom, but uh, one author I really like suggests that that's actually the right way up approach. Jesus' statements, as I said, are not timeless truths about just the way the world works. Poverty goes unaided, mourners go uncomforted. But Jesus is saying that with his life, with his ministry, with his death, his resurrection and ascension, these statements are becoming true. So think of them as announcements about what life under the kingship of Jesus looks like, rather than a philosophical analysis of the world. It's something that's starting to happen. So, to recap, human flourishing is only available in relationship with God, with the Father, with Jesus the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. True human flourishing is experienced through a faithful, heart-deep, whole person discipleship. It's following Jesus and his life and his teaching. And what that does is situate us in God's kingdom and in his community. It's upside down or the right way up. And it goes against the grain of whatever context we're living in, whether you're living in Melbourne or somewhere further afield. 
And yet the Bible also says that the, the fullness of true human flourishing will only be fully experienced when Jesus returns and God establishes his reign here on earth because we experience suffering. But even suffering doesn't undermine God's vision for our flourishing. In fact, many of you might have stories where you know that it has been a means to flourishing even now. I think we could compare these words... Flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven and flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. I think we could compare these words to like a plow that's going through a field. Um, not a farmer, but I believe this is how it works. A plow gets drawn along the ground and it like rips it up. It drives sharp edges into the earth and in a sense like it kind of carves out almost like a, a wound, you know when like you're flying in a plane, obviously, um, and you're going over and you look down and you see cultivated ground and it kind of looks wrong in a way, like the straight lines can be quite pleasing, but it looks like a wound in that hillside. I think in the same way, statements like this from Jesus are like, it's like a plough but into our um, understanding of how the world works. It's like the Holy Spirit takes these ideas in order to like break up our interior, so interior soil. I think it should. It should overturn our ideas and projects. It should reverse what the world says is obvious. It should thwart our desires and bewilder us, leaving us, well, poor in spirit with nothing to offer before God. But you plough ground in order to put seeds in, and those seeds prepare a place for new life. And I wonder if that's what Jesus is wanting to do with these phrases, these statements, these truths for us today. You cannot make yourself into someone for whom Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. You can't just wake up each morning and be like, poor in spirit, poor in spirit. It doesn't work like that. You also can't make yourself into someone whom God comforts, restores, and redeems. That's Jesus' work. But what we can do is we can let the Holy Spirit break up your idea of what the good life is, what the best 2024 could be, what the thing you hope and pray for the most is. Because living your best life is actually living it with Jesus. It's not the four Fs, fitness, fun, good finances, great friends. It's also not the three dreams, dream home, dream partner, dream kids. Living your best life is living life with Jesus. And so I thought in the spirit of 2024 New Year's resolutions, we could take a moment and consider what some rockin' with Jesus resolutions could look like in light of this. Uh, I'll share some of mine because obviously I prepped this and have had more time than you to think about it. But it's things like this. In 2024, I would like to pray a prayer of confession daily as a reminder to not get cocky and remind myself that I am indeed poor in spirit. In 2024, I want to make a commitment to be financially generous with what God has given me, giving money to Tia as a way of acknowledging our relative economic prosperity. 
And in 2024, I want to make a conscious effort of reflecting on how I interact with friends who are grieving and desiring to comfort them, not with uh, useful platitudes, which aren't actually that useful, um, but by presenting the true comfort of Jesus. So is there anything that comes to mind for you? Anything God might be inviting you to notice? Jesus' teaching is a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense of God's promised future because that future has arrived in the present in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it might seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is in fact the right way up. So let me pray before we sing. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would come and do that work in our imagination, in our desires, in our hopes, uh, that you would plough up soil, um, that you would plant seeds of new life. Would you make us and help us to be aware of the empty hands to which we come to you with? that you invite us to come and sit at your table. We bring nothing, and yet you provide abundantly. And God, we think of people who are mourning. We bring our griefs to you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would comfort us this morning. Would you be the true comfort to our hearts, to our minds, to our friends, to our family? God, we look forward to the day when the true big comfort will come in Jesus' return, in his judgment, and in his putting everything back to right. In whose name we pray. Amen.